trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access to Excellence. We're thrilled to be joined today by Mark J. Roselle, who's the founding dean of the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and the holder of the Ruth D. and John T. Hazel Chair in Public Policy. Mark is a renowned political savant who has authored nine books and edited 20 others on various topics dealing with the U.S. government and politics. His most recent book, Federalism, A Very Short Introduction, came out last year. Few people understand politics like Mark Rozelle, and as we head into the prime of election season, there's no one better to talk about the upcoming election and its nuances. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Delighted to do this. Well, we're glad to have you here. So let's get started. Mark, we're entering the home stretch of the 2020 presidential race with three presidential debates coming up as we inch closer to Election Day on November 3rd. These events in the past have been must-see TV events, but just how important are they really? It's a great question to start with because we have these debates coming up and a lot of people are really wondering, will these debates make a difference? Now, the political science literature says that most debates have only a very marginal impact on the public opinion polls and not a great overall impact themselves on elections. But I differ a little bit because I think debates should not be seen merely as a single event that affected a campaign in itself, but rather something that is a part of the overall impression that voters have of candidates in campaigns. And it can have a very important impact as part of that broader picture that citizens develop in evaluating presidential candidates. So let me give some examples from history that I think are very interesting. Everybody knows the famous case of 1960, right? The first televised national presidential debate, John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, people who had listened to the debate on radio had thought that Mr. Nixon had come across stronger and was the better debater. People who had watched on TV thought John Kennedy had won the debate. He came across much stronger. The visual aspect certainly is a very important one in the modern era. But more importantly, that was one of a number of debates, I would argue, in history where the impressions created by voters that fit into sort of an overall package of how people viewed the candidates had a very important impact. So you had a relatively young junior senator coming up against a two-term incumbent vice president of the United States, and people wondering if John F. Kennedy can hold his own. Does he even belong there on the stage with Richard Nixon? The impression created was that he was quite strong and very well informed on the issues and made a very, very positive impression. I think that had a big impact overall on the campaign. Another example would be 1976. That was the next time we had presidential debates televised. There was a long interlude between. Gerald R. Ford famously said in the foreign policy debate, they divided the debates back then between domestic policy and foreign policy, that there is no Soviet domination in Eastern Europe and there never will be an afford administration. Well, that caused an audible gasp by many people in the audience. And the reporter who asked that question gave him a chance to clarify and Ford repeated it. And what was very interesting is that the immediate post-debate analyses 
suggested that the public had thought Ford had done better than Carter because the overall impression was that he was stronger on foreign policy and this governor from Georgia really wasn't belonging on the same stage with the incumbent president in the arena of foreign policy. But as the political analyses emphasized repeatedly, the big gaffe made by the president of the United States in a debate, public opinion changed substantially. And that ended up being a very, very close election, ultimately. And a lot of people think that debate was a potential turning point. And the next one I'll mention, and I'll, I'll stop here on this, was 1980, a week before Election Day. The Democrats and incumbent Jimmy Carter were trying to portray Ronald Reagan as somebody who simply could not responsibly be in the Oval Office, that he was potentially trigger happy, that he had extremist views, that he was just a little bit too scary to be the president of the United States. And Reagan gave a very soothing performance, and it was enough to overcome the concerns that perhaps some voters had, whether he was best suited to be the president of the United States. And the polling data showed that there was a late break in the polls in that election that certainly I think the debate had a significant amount to do with. Who do you see as more to lose in the upcoming debates, Mark, between President Trump and Joe Biden? And who do you see with the most to gain? Well, I think really the president has the most to lose. People expect the president of the United States as the incumbent who has a record to be able to present over the past four years to be a more commanding presence and to be able to defend his record in office. And it's really for the challenger to make the case that he could do an even better job than the incumbent could do. So I think there is some real potential risk to the president, but there's also risk to Joe Biden as well. Biden has an opportunity to over come a caricature, a portrait that the Trump people are trying to present of the Democratic nominee, that somehow he's not fully all there cerebrally, that he's lost some of his touch and lost some of his edge due to his old age and his well-known tendency for making gaffes, for example, certainly has been part of that picture that the Republicans have been painting of Joe Biden. If Biden is to fall into that trap at any point, I think that could be very damaging for his campaign. So he has to be very forthright right, I think, very strong in the debate against the incumbent president. And if he is, it could end up working very much to his favor. Well, Mark, the president is obviously at his best in, in the presence of audience. He's a true showman, likes to put on a show. How much does having an audience affect how he performs and how he comes across the American public? So the president, as you mentioned, does like having an audience and he feeds off the reactions that he gets from people in the crowds. But these debates in the past have not been entirely one-sided crowds, which is what he's used to when he does his big public events. But the tickets that are allotted are split between partisans for each side equally. But ultimately, I find the audience reactions and participation to be a distraction in these events. And oftentimes, the moderator has had to interject and explain to the audience that they are not to react to what the candidates are saying. It's taking away their precious time to answer questions or give rebuttals. So I think to some extent, perhaps Trump loses a little bit of an edge because he likes to play off of a crowd and stoke his supporters who would have been half the audience had this been done as a live audience event. Frankly, none of us likes a pandemic, but I suppose (laughs) we'll take this one, which is it's probably a lot better to have a debate without an audience and just have the candidates there and not have the audience reaction in any way, influencing how people perceive the candidates' responses to answers. Now, you touched upon the global pandemic. That's obviously going to be the most pressing question of the, of the election. 
How does the president even spend the deaths of more than 200,000 Americans to this virus? And is that even possible? It's not possible for the president to spin this issue in his favor in any way. The only thing he can do is distract from this issue and try to put the national focus on other issues that play more in his territory. But the loss of over 200,000 lives and the widely acknowledged failure of this administration in its handling of the pandemic are a major stain on his presidency and are having an impact on the polls right now, where Joe Biden does have a somewhat significant lead in most most of the national polls. And interestingly, importantly, I will say, the president has lost some significant following among the older voting cohort. He does very well with older voters, but they're the people who are the most medically vulnerable to this virus and to its consequences. And that has had some impact on how older voters view this president. And I think that's something to look out for in this election as a real factor that could make a difference ultimately to the outcome. How much credence, though, should we put in polling these days after what happened in 2016, in which everybody thought for sure Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president? People should still follow polls. I think polls generally are very reliable. I'm giving sort of a counter-conventional wisdom analysis here, but I think it's absolutely true. Let me state it this way. The public opinion polls, the national polls in 2016 were highly accurate. They were more accurate than the polls were in 2012, for example. But the Electoral College outcome and the national popular vote went in two different directions in 2016, and that did not happen in 2012. The national polls in 2016 had the margin very, very close between the two candidates. Where things went wrong was in some state polls in some of the states that ended up being remarkably close in the upper Midwest and Midwest states that Trump surprisingly won, where there was not really very good polling quality being done at the state level. And the Clinton campaign was lulled into believing that these past reliably Democratic voting states would easily go into her column in that election. And they did not perceive some of the energy that was building for Trump's campaign because the polls in the individual states there were not showing that. They were showing that Clinton still had a substantial lead. So I don't blame the pollsters for, quote unquote, getting it wrong in 2016. They did not get it wrong. They said Clinton would win the national popular vote. She won the national popular vote. Most of them projected the margin rather closely to what the actual outcome was. But we don't have national popular vote system for picking the president of the United States. We have an electoral college. You've publicly contended in the past market. There's a possible alternative path for the Democrats to victory. Only this time through states other than Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, those Midwestern states you referred to. Where do you see another potential winning path for the Democrats? And how realistic is that for November? So I think it's more realistic for 2024 than it is for this election cycle. So the analysis that my co-author and I wrote on a different path for the Democrats in the Electoral College really was emphasizing the demographic trends in the United States showing a significant change in voting patterns that is in the works right now, probably not enough for this election cycle to flip some, for example, deep South states 
to the Democrats. I still think Georgia and North Carolina, perhaps Florida, you know, are good states for Trump. Florida is going to be, I think, the most difficult one to project. But if you look at the demographic trends over time, my co-author and I argue that there is a South-Southwest coalition of states in the Electoral College that had previously reliably gone Republican that are going to shift to the Democrats. And therefore, the Democratic Party path to victory for the presidency in the Electoral College will not necessarily run through the Midwest and upper Midwest that everybody's talking about right now. One thing we know is going to be another hot button topic throughout the rest of the campaign is the recent death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Republican attempts to fill her seat, possibly before November 3rd. How big of a role could the passing of Judge Ginsburg play in the outcome of this election and why? The vacancy of a Supreme Court seat was a powerful influencer in the election in 2016. It gave Donald Trump, the Republican nominee in that cycle, what he needed to project to conservative constituencies, particularly religious conservatives, that it was important that he be elected in order to help turn the Supreme Court to the right. He even emphasized in many of his public utterances a number of individuals who he said he would consider appointing to the Supreme Court. And this, again, was signaling to the conservative base of the Republican Party, particularly the religious right, that he would put people on the court who they believed would interpret constitutional law the right way. So that played very much, I think, to Trump's favor in 2016. It could do so again in this election cycle. It creates a powerful incentive for many Republican conservatives who might otherwise have concerns about voting for Mr. Trump based on his failed leadership in the pandemic and a number of other issue areas where they have very serious concerns, reservations about his leadership, because now they see the Supreme Court is at stake. And the Supreme Court for rank and file conservatives is a very, very powerful motivator in their voting decisions. So I think this issue plays to Trump's advantage, ultimately. And it does for a second reason as well. And that goes back to what I said before, the president's ability to distract public attention away from the pandemic and to focus on issues that are more in his territory where he tends to fare better. If he can make this election very much about the Supreme Court and the next appointment and putting conservatives on the federal courts generally and have that argument out there publicly wash away much of the attention that otherwise would have gone to the pandemic, I think it works to his advantage. I can certainly understand why he would, but this is also a heated conversation with potential serious risk for both the Democratic and Republican parties. Why do both sides of the ideological aisle need to tread so very carefully on this issue? Well, they need to tread very carefully because it has the potential to just substantially activate rank and file voters in the progressive movement, as well as in the conservative movement. So my comments at this point have focused on the advantages that I see that the president has in mobilizing rank and file conservatives over this issue of a court appointment. But we've also seen an enormous amount of energy being stoked on the liberal democratic side over the issue of the Supreme Court appointment. So from that standpoint, I think, each political party understands that there are potentials, but also risks that they can't know for sure 
how this issue will ultimately play out. So they have to be very, very careful in how they talk about this issue and how they move forward. And, you know, Mr. Trump, of course, is looking at some potential nominees for the Supreme Court position that could mix up other issues in this campaign. For example, if he is to pick a religiously devout Catholic, and I've made the argument in some columns that have been published that the Catholic vote, not the evangelical vote, might be absolutely key to the outcome of this presidential campaign and explain the reasons why. And for the Democrats in the hearings to be raising questions, for example, about a Supreme Court nominee's religious identity in any way, or at least how one's religious identity impacts her views on various constitutional issues, could get into some very complex areas, right, that could play out in the presidential campaign with some voters who are critical to the election. So I think both sides have to play this one really carefully. It's really hard, Mark, for me to fathom as a guy who grew up in Virginia and remember it firmly being in the red column to see the Commonwealth decidedly blue now. It's incredible. No Republican candidate has won statewide here since 2009. And the state's pretty much considered a lock for Joe Biden after going to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Barack Obama in 2012. What's been behind this transformation and do you see it continuing? Significant demographic changes have really impacted the overall voting patterns of the Commonwealth of Virginia over the past decade. And these have had a substantially positive impact on the Democratic Party of Virginia. So if you look at where the population growth in Virginia has been in recent years, it's in the high population urban areas. It's among minority populations and people moving into the Commonwealth from other states as well. And these new voters tend to be much more leaning Democrat than Republican. The rural areas of the state, of course, remain not only solidly Republican, but even more intensely so. So if you look at the exit polls from recent election cycles, even though the Republicans keep losing, as you point out, every election since 2009 statewide, they've actually done a good job of mobilizing their base voters and turning out their people. But the problem is their base isn't as big an overall component of the voting population in Virginia anymore. It's not big enough to win statewide elections. So for the Republicans to stage a comeback, I think they need to look very, very seriously at how the demographic changes in Virginia have influenced Virginia politics. I don't believe that Virginia is permanently in the blue category, a permanent Democratic leading state. Uh, I know some analysts disagree with me on that, but I could see some potential for a Republican resurgence in the future in a post-Trump era if the Republicans are to do a kind of reset as to some of the basic principles of the party that have turned off many of the new voters that have come into the Commonwealth. I think there's great potential for Republicans. Republicans to do outreach to many groups that are leaning Democratic right now. But they need to get past the Trump era, I think, in order to turn around their fortunes in this state. So could a loss in November by President Trump, ironically, be a boon to Virginia Republicans? Absolutely, it could. And in fact, I have a piece coming out in the Washington Post close to home section on exactly that topic, suggesting that a loss by the president could cause a resurgence for the Republicans next year. If you just look at the historical pattern, by the way, in Virginia in the modern era, with the exception of the 2013 election that brought Terry McAuliffe to the governorship the year after Barack Obama was reelected, the pattern has always been 
important that the party in the White House loses the gubernatorial election in Virginia the next year. It's almost like an early midterm correction phenomenon. You know, so we know that there's a midterm correction in American politics where two years after a president is elected, Americans tend to put many more members of the opposition party in Congress to surround the president a little bit and constrain his powers. And in Virginia, that just happens a year earlier because we have this unusual system, only Virginia and New Jersey do this, of the off-year off elections, as we call them, the year after the presidential election campaign. So if history is any guide, the Republicans would be well-positioned to win the governorship in Virginia the year after this if President Trump is to lose. Now, that's not a prediction. It's just saying that based on the historical pattern, there's an opportunity for the Republicans to stage a comeback statewide, and then they would be able to control more of the policy agenda, and that would be their opportunity to do that reset that I've been talking about, which could bring the party back into a much more long-term competitive position. Well, Mark, thanks. Uh, i tell you one thing, just, just talking to you, it's obvious that politics has become a full contact sport these days. So I'm sure we have a lot of fireworks ahead of us between now and November 3rd. So that should give us all a lot to look forward to as we wrap up things here at Access to Excellence. We want to thank Mark Rizzo for his time and valuable insights. I want to wish him all the best and everything ahead. I'm John Hollis, and thank you for joining us. Stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.